You're listening to the 405 Exchange Podcast. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is with Tim Booth of the band Jams. It's hard to believe that they formed back in 1982, and that's largely due to how James have never stopped being a vital band. There's only a small handful of bands who have been able to constantly push themselves along with both their artistry and their audiences. Last year, James released their 15th album, Living in Extraordinary Times, and on this episode of the podcast, I chat with frontman Tim Booth about how the ongoings of the world greatly informed the songwriting of the album. It was such a pleasure getting to talk to Tim. He's he's one of those people who has many opinions, but is keenly open to hearing the perspectives of others. He's a very generous, gentle, and welcoming man, and this is easily one of my favorite talks. Thank you for listening. This is the 405 Exchange with Tim Booth of James. Enjoy. My God, what's his name? Says your God is just calamari. My God's new to this game. So tell me this, when touring has been such a mainstay of your life, it leads me to wonder how you, you're you able to keep it fresh each time. Um, uh, we've had a couple of people on the show that we've been fortunate to talk to who have had touring being such a uh, long aspect of our lives. But I think apart from Gary Newman, you've, the, you're the guest we've had on who's toured the most in our life. So, Shit. Yeah. So, so uh, take this tour, for example. I'd love to know, like... Does it feel different than any of the previous tours you've been on so far? Usually, I try and uh, since about two thousand, I've only I only go away for two week, three week blocks because I have a fifteen year old boy. Um, so usually, we can manage it in that way, in that it's painful to be away from family for about after about two weeks, and you can therefore three weeks and just about okay. Yeah. Um, this one. Is going to be longer, and we go straight off to England straight afterwards. So it's going to be nearly ten weeks. They'll, they'll come out on tour with me. Um, that's the hardest bit, literally. We love playing. We love traveling. We, we don't love traveling, but we love playing. And we change the set every night. We improvise, and I'm in an incredible band um, where the lead guitarist was a cellist for the English Philharmonic Orchestra where the lead viol- guitar player, the second guitar player, yeah. was a violinist in the Scottish orchestra. <laughs> um, we've got an amazing trumpet player, we've got a keyboard player who can play anything, anything. You give him a goat and he'll know how to play it. <laughs> so, you know, I feel really blessed to be in one, a great, one of the great bands, and, um, and especially live, more than on record. We've never, we capture it, but I mean, we, we were blessed enough to work with Brian Eno for five albums, um, uh, and Charlie Andrews on this last album, who did Old Jay's record. Um, but there's nothing like live. Live is the real litmus test of a band, and that's our strength. That's where we're really good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of the joys I had prepping for this interview is that um, I've been familiar with your music for a lot of years now. I'm going to get into that, but. Uh, when I knew this interview was coming up, I went and looked at some live footage because I knew that in that context I'd be talking to you, and it's it's really a, it's it feels so much like a celebration, so much more than a live show. Very much, especially with you specifically, it feels like you can't help but 
be part of the crowd. You can't help but be make sure that there's more of an extension going on than what's just on stage. It gets lonely on stage, and um, I love going out and seeing who's there. But the problem is, in the last few years, phones and and people wanting to stick a phone in your face rather than so you can have an interaction with someone one on one. You get to see that they have a Samsung or an iPhone, <laughs> 10 and. Uh, that becomes a problem. And if you're stage diving, and people have got a phone in one hand and they're trying to catch you in another, yeah, that's pretty hairy. it becomes really dangerous. So I, 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 I'm having to curtail some of it because of that. Um, but it's for me, it, it's about communication, it's about communion. Um, a lot of our songs are about that. Um, about, you know, that we are one. We are, you know, we may look at differences between us, but actually, we are, we are one. And, um, so it's only natural that there's an extension of that in the performance, I think. Um, and it's, we, 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 we take many moods, so it ends up being a celebration, because ultimately we're positive, but we'll take people in some dark places on the way to that celebration, because as a human being you can't not, you know. So tonight we open with Hank, I think. I'm just writing the set list right now. We change it every night. And Hank is a song about Trump, and so it's a dark song. Um, it's a militaristic song. It's almost got a fascist beat to it. Yeah. Um, but then later on, we'll have complete joyful union songs about you know that all walls fall over time, and there's only one human race, many faces, everybody belongs here. Um, inclusive songs. Um, but we we I think we cover the spectrum. We'll also have songs about. Uh, tonight, this song about one of my best friends who's in New York, so I kind of like playing in New York, died. And she, a few years ago, and she didn't tell me she was, had cancer, and so I arrived here. I flew in, but arrived too late to say goodbye. And so we have songs like that. So it, it's, it's a celebration. The bits that get highlighted on YouTube are the celebratory bits, but we take people on a journey on the way to that celebration. That's a beautiful thing to hear, and I'm sorry to hear about your friend as well. Everybody, everybody has to, you know, death and birth are the two facts. The inescapable life. ones. Inescapable ones, the yeah. bookends. Yeah, exactly. Um, I got into your band back in 2014 when you guys dropped uh, Le Pite Moore. Um, I was always familiar with James, particularly with uh, partially growing up in the UK and touring around with a lot of acts. So we, we brought Charlie Andrew um, earlier, and what's really cool about his work that I do with all Jay is uh, I met him only once years ago when he came here with LJ on a trip and it was like one of their very early trips so it's kind of a little bit of a nice connection but um, the reason I bring up uh, La Pite Mort is because I feel like ever since you released that album as a band there's been a shift in trajectory in regards to how you approach songwriting, how you approach your artistry and I feel like there's an interesting connective thread and tissue of inspiration that was from the experience of not just making La Pizza more, but also uh, touring it. Would I be far off in thinking that at all? Or? Yes, no, you wouldn't be far off. Um, I think it was two, two things, almost accidental things. Our keyboard player is a very modest human being. And generally when we, we every song we've ever written is written through improvisation. And four of us, Keys, Saul and Jimmy and me, and um, that's the last number of years when Larry was in. Larry used to be part of that. Um, and we, um, 
the keyboards always used to be so quiet. Mark was so self-effacing, he'd have to be too quiet, and we couldn't hear him. So the songs had keyboard in, but they weren't built around keyboards. And around Le Petit Moor, I got stroppy and kept <laughs> turning him up in the room and wouldn't let him turn himself down. <laughs> and so we then started to hear what he was playing while we were improvising and bouncing off him. So the keyboards became more central to us, I think, from around that album. And the other thing that happened was Jimmy bought a fuzz pedal, the bass player, and he used to play very high up the neck, almost like an acoustic guitar bass, um, quite Manchester uh, thing. Um, and suddenly he's playing dirty fuzz bass. And we started to look for grooves a bit more. And that's happened since Le Petit Moore. Um, and it, some of it was just, you know, we would turn up the keyboard player. <laughs> some of it was, you know, I bought a fuzz pedal. And the other bit was like, I like dancing, so I, you know, can we make a bit more music that people can actually move to a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so those those are probably the things you're picking up on. That there's an intensity to the lyrics, but there's always been an intensity to the lyrics. And around Le Petit More, my life got a bit more intense. My mother died, and my best friend died, or my best friend died. So that was that album, and then the next album. Um, was about relationships, watching a lot of relationships crumble around us. I think all relationships have been challenged at the moment, as far as I can see. We know about 26 divorces in the last five years in our community. Wow. And, and it's almost like everybody is questioning what they want between freedom and security, between uh, fluidity and, and rigidity. And sexuality, and um, that really came out in that record, I think, quite strongly. And then Trump came in on the last record, and you can't get anything much more intense <laughs> than that. But it's not just Trump, it's um, a rising nationalism that's around the world in response, I think, to the financial cra crash, historically speaking. Whenever you have a financial crash, there's a national rise in nationalism, and we see that. It's a fear-based reaction to people going, we have to hold on to what we've got, you know. And um, you can see that in this country, you can see it in Brazil, you can see it in Brexit in England, you can see it in, in Europe and some of the far-right um, rising in certain countries. Um, so there's been a lot to write about in the last six years that have probably added an intensity to the making of the records. What I love about everything you just said there, particularly how you bookended, is just how it's so clear how exists just being a human being, the act of such for you as a writer, being a human being informs your work not in a way that you're seeking it out, but it has it can only do just that, that the experiences that you experience personally, how the world is shifting and because of your um, life as a musician, all the traveling you've done. I mean, you get insight in a way that a lot of people don't, and you get to see how the paradigm is shifting. Um, for me personally as well, uh, just kind of going off what you mentioned, um, I lived in Sweden for a little bit back in 2013, and around that time was when uh, the political party, the Swedish Democrats, was ri rising up a far-right movement. And ever since then, it's been steadily increasing. And at a place like that, you would never expect something like that, but it's like you're saying, informed by the wider world and just how all these shifts in dynamics. It's just, it's a really weird place to be. 
Yeah, I mean, we called the record living in extraordinary times, avoiding living in appalling times or, you know, something really depressing. Because I also think there's an outing. Trump is a shadow of a whole load of views that a lot of uh, arrogant white men, including, you know, white men hold uh, or white people hold. And he is the shadow personified. It's outed. It's there for everyone to see, and there's something healthy about that process. It means that people can really see what they're dealing with. And um, so, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, the women's movement, um, Me Too movement, the kids from Florida, um, Greta Thorberg with Extinction Crisis, there's some amazing medicines coming back at this um, that might not be there without him. <laughs> he maybe is being quite inspirational. Um, especially, you know, the women are coming and I'm so excited by that because the men have fucked it up for long enough. Awesome. And, and, um, so I, I want to see some of the women in power. And, you know, they may fuck it up too, but maybe it'll be in a different way, but, but at least it's time, you know, after thousands of years of male domination and male religions where the God is a man because we couldn't possibly have a female god even though women obviously create all of us they give birth to all of us exactly um, so that's that's why I think the root of religion comes is men feeling their insecurity and insignificance when confronted with a woman giving birth um, so we have male based religions where all the gods are men um, and so you know it, it's exciting there's a big struggle going on and we don't know what the outcome is yet um, I'd include in that great writers, um, Noah Harari, who write, wrote Sapiens and all those books he's written since, which I think are fantastic. Esther Perel, who writes about relationship and, and fluidity of sexuality. And, um, and Michael Pollan's book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, which, you know, at the moment, MDMA with therapy is on its third stage of testing. Um, by the FDA uh, for treatment of PTSD and it's proving to be the most effective uh, treatment to PTSD by leap years um, and they've got 750,000 troops from Afghanistan and Iraq who have PTSD who need this um, but let alone nearly everybody needs this most people have PTSD of some description or another I think the birth, being born is probably the first PTSD experience <laughs> that one has. Um, and the use of psilocybin with therapy is on stage two testing by the FDA. And the European Union is accepting the two stages of both those uh, scientific studies. So I think the new medicines are coming. I've experienced therapy with both those um, medicines. And it's like a year's therapy in one day. It's like intense but it's fantastic um, and so I can speak to that and I'm excited that these things are going to come into the culture and really affect the culture in a strong way so I have a, a lot I have the balance between you know I, I, I was I got into meditation at 21 and I, be, I was you know, I never took drugs never drank because I had a li inherited liver disease from the age of about 12 to 21 and I died of it when I was 21 and was revived in a hospital. And um, 
So I went into alternatives, and only in the last few years have I started to see that these things can be used as medicines. Um, these things that were called recreational drugs can actually be incredibly beneficial to how to change your mind, how to change a human being, which I, I find a fascinating, you know, how do you change a human being? It's, it's a, such a great study. You know, I'm a trained therapist, I'm, I teach also a movement system um, where we, a hundred people come in a room, I DJ and I guide people into trying to get them to dance whatever's coming up in their body. So if they're angry, if they're full of grief, if they're full of paranoia, if they're full of insecurity, you dance it for two, two hours. You might scream, you might rage, you might weep. And it's, we, we do it in LA. My wife is the, she's the primary teacher because I'm traveling too much. Yeah. Um, and it's really cathartic experience for people. We, we meet twice a week and uh, it's growing. It's really good fun. Well, what a life you lead, as you lead. I mean, well, even outside of the realm of music. Well, that stuff is the stuff that informs a lot of my lyric writing because it keeps blowing me open. It keeps, it stops rigor mortis setting in because otherwise I'm old and you know, <laughs> rigor mortis will be setting in. It keeps me fluid and it keeps my psyche um, unable to quite um, get content <laughs> in, a, in a certain kind of bad bad way I mean there's, I do want a bit more contentment in life but there's a contentment where you stop trying yeah. and um, I don't want that or you stop being pissed off at injustice have you uh, ever suffered from writer's block ever in your life because I almost with the way you're talking I almost imagine that would be almost impossible for you <laughs> what if, that's I, beautiful I nearly I, I don't I wouldn't call it writer's block I, I've been writing a novel for the first time and it's been a struggle, and that's been five years. And there was a period of a year and a half where James was so intense, I couldn't write it. And so, but I, and it pissed me off. But at the same time, I don't think I'd call it writer's block, I was just doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, because the dancing really does it. One of my favorite albums I made was with Angelo Badlamenti here in New York. Angelo is David Lynch's news who does all Twin Peaks and all, all his films and um, I was dancing five hours a day and then in the evening writing the album and we wrote the album in about a week and a half because it was I was so on fire Something from the dance intense period it was no it's beautiful it was one of the most joyful periods of the I world. guess I meant intense from a definitely exhilarating from a mental standpoint but just the a matter of attentiveness that it required one would require one to be within that space. I mean, it's beautiful, but it definitely would call cause for a lot from you, would it not? Um, it's amazing if you dance what I'd call authentic dancing rather than club or one genre. You know, you go to a club and they play one genre of music the whole night and the beats are within a range. But the dancing we do might start out ambient then might go to um, a kind of a beautiful acoustic song by Sufjan Stevens, and then might go to a house track, and then might go to Iggy Pop, I Wanna Be Your Dog, and then might go to, um, you know, This Is America, and then might go to some dance music, and then comes down again into something more peaceful and relaxing. If you do it as a wave, it's amazing how much more energy you have how you can go on forever. It's literally, 
you get exhausted in one rhythm and then suddenly a new a piece of classical music is put on and you find you've got some energy or or a rap tra track is put on and you find you've got some energy and you didn't think you had it so you can go on for days I once did like a month um, about six, seven hours a day um, that was the most I've ever done where, you know, about a hundred of us were doing that. And um, it, it was just beautiful. We had one day off a week and we were dancing six, seven hours a day. What I love about talking to you about all this is like with getting into, having experienced your albums and uh, having the contacts of how your life has been uh, throughout being in James and where the world is now. I feel like I just have so much more uh, context for the art itself. And I feel like that definitely comes along most definitely within Living Extraordinary Times. and. Um, one of the things I was very keen on asking you about the album when I was on my way here and I knew I was going to be talking to you is that, you know, typically when it comes to interviews, you talk about an album prior to it coming out. The You try to kind of make sense and gauge of what it's going to be and how it's going to make people feel or hopefully make people feel. But I always find myself more intrigued to discover how an artist feels about an album after some time has passed. I mean, mm. clearly from us just talking up until this point, it's clear that many of the themes within the songs are still very relevant. Know, prevalent within the world, but how do you feel about the album now, almost a year later? It's it's doing it's doing great for us. We we you know because we had an old audience from the nineties, especially in America. But what's happened? The last three albums have picked up a young audience in Europe, particularly. So when we go to Greece. It's twenty teenagers, thirty year olds just from the last three albums. And they don't want to hear the old stuff. <laughs> and it's really gratifying. That's why we came back. We were like, are we only going to come back if we can make music as good as the music we made in the 90s? We can't have hits because people that won't play music from people in their 50s uh, on hit radio. It just doesn't happen. Um, in England, it's literally, they won't play it. Um, um, so, but the, we know the music's as good because we play it live and the audience react as strongly to the new songs as they do the old. Um, a song like Many Faces, we played it before it was released and we would watch people burst into tears uh, in the audience and then they would start to sing it to us, a song they'd never heard and sometimes even leave the venue singing it even above songs that they knew in familiarity. And that was like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah, I think what it is, is when you sing, there's only one human race, many faces, everybody belongs here, you get high. Because I, I think it's an ultimate truth that we keep forgetting that we are all one. And when you keep singing that, the audience get high. And there have been gigs where we, we've had to let them sing it for 10 minutes before we could start the next song. And so there's, you know, there, there are lots of these songs that we're still loving playing, so we're probably playing too much, because <laughs> we, we like to change it, we change the set every night, yeah. but there are some of these songs that we just don't want to let go of yet, so we're still playing about five or six from the new, we're only playing an hour tonight, hour and ten minutes. Yeah, tonight but, at uh, the rooftop here, 17 here in New York City. But we're still going to play half of the songs we'll probably be from uh, Living Extraordinary Times, because we know they're good enough songs to go down even with an audience who haven't heard them. Well, it's really incredible and just very um, striking. It's just, you know, I was going to bring up uh, Many Faces, particularly because what I, I mean, it resonated with me, especially with being an American, but also um, traveling a lot. And um, 
experiencing different places and where the world is now, it very much resonated with me. And I could tell it's the song from the album that's definitely resonated with a lot of people. Mm. As an artist, you always hope for that. But from talking to you, I could tell that it's clear that life can still surprise you in many ways, especially as we've talked about the arc of the three albums, the three most recent albums. Is there any element of surprise that comes from how much the song is resonating with people? Like, I mean, obviously it makes you happy, but... We, like, I thought that song would be powerful. I thought that was the most important song. We tried to make it into a single, and it wouldn't... Charlie was like, I, can't, I don't know how to make this into a single. So we left it. And then we finally, the record company came and said, can you make it into a single? And I wanted it to be a single. <laughs> so we saw managed to find a way to do it. Um, and so we knew it was a big song but, but still when it isn't released and people are crying it, that's unusual it was as strong stronger reaction as any song we've ever written um, I remember the first time we played it this guy just burst into tears on the front row so I tried to make eye contact with him and sing it to him and he, he just couldn't look at me he, he didn't want me to look at me he was like he was gonna go if I if he looked at me. He was really gonna lose it, and so that's my, that's my text. Uh, <laughs> the sound of a duck. That it, was really cool. <laughs> it cheers me up. Um, and then, so yeah. So essentially, um, those were a bit surprising. It was like a brand new song, and the guy gets it immediately. That's like wow. And then other people were crying, and it was like holy shit, great. So, yeah, there are surprises. It's, um, yeah. That's a really beautiful thing. I only have a couple more questions for you. Thanks so much for finding the time right before uh, you're about to play a show tonight. It's real good. Um, and, you know, obviously because of um, just the life that you lead and, you know, what your work is, you're always writing, I imagine. I mean, the fact that, you know, James has released 15 albums. I mean, when you hear that, that's pretty well. So 15 albums. Yeah. That's really massive. Um, I'm curious to hear about how the songs you've been writing lately, how they've been revealing themselves to you, and if it's been feeling any different, or have you been finding yourself just, not approaching it differently, but like, different ideas have been kind of steering the direction of what you want to write about? Do you know, I've backed away from it. We've done a few, uh, probably eight days of jamming, and I purposely, I did, I did work on a few of the songs, um, and a couple of them were really strong, as strong as anything on the new record. And then I kind of went, I'm going to back away from these because we're stopping in mid-September for a proper break. I think I'll wait until I go, then I go back and listen. When we improvise songs, we have no idea if they're any good. It's like we're so lost in the, the being of it. And it's only when you go back and listen, you go, oh, I, we could make this into a song. We could add this to this to this. You start to weigh up what you've got. And um, we call it fishing, uh, the improvisation. And so I don't truthfully know what fish we've caught yet. Um, I like the sound of that, though. Would you say that's quite crucial? Like, essentially, the element of not just improvisation, but willing to take some distance and returning, like the act of that? I think so. But I think the improvisation is the reason most bands have one or two songwriters and they get pretty repetitive after four or five albums. Yeah. If you're improvising, you have no control over the process. He plays something, then I add something, and then Saul adds something, and Mark, and it keeps on moving. 
in a different direction that none of us are controlling. And so the music evolves itself and that's the joy of it and that's what keeps fresh and surprises us. And so a song like Heads off this record is probably one of our favourites because it doesn't sound like anything we've ever done before. Um, and so it turns us on more because we don't want to sound like James. You know, we want, we want, to, we want to just like follow the music and just keep on following the music. It's like, it's not an intention to have a sound. It's an intention to follow the song. I love that. And, you know, I feel like that Duffy has come across a lot particularly in those the three most recent albums and even some of the earlier stuff, but like that aspect of where not just improvisation, but anyone can con contribute, whether it be guitars, bass, like I feel like that's what comes across a lot. Like I, whenever I listen to your music, I feel like I hear not just all of you in a room, but pretty much a wealth of instruments lying around that no one would feel too shy from picking up. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be reductive, and this will be my last question before I run out of here, but would you say in some ways when you consider the longevity of the band, that stuff you played an important role. The aspect that everyone can contribute beyond what their principal instrument is. I think so. Yeah, I do. I mean, it, it's hard to, like with trumpet, we, when Andy joined the band, we were like, oh, we're a bit worried because you can't put trumpet on every song. <laughs> but Andy is so creative and inventive and puts his trumpet through effects and machines so it doesn't sound like a trumpet half the time. And it's that that kind of means that he's so creative that we don't, never have to say don't put trumpet on this song because you never know quite what he's going to do and Saul who's a brilliant violinist hardly ever plays violin um, and it, it, to our annoyance because <laughs> um, we're like please play violin <laughs> particularly he, he can play violin to make me cry like literally live really? every so often he'll start playing and he'll look at me and he'll walk over to me and he knows what he's going to do to me there's something about the violin that just gets you in the heart and if it's the right song where I'm really connecting to an emotional lyric he, he knows how to take me out you know and it, it's kind of almost a thing we know we have a running almost joke about um, like tonight I'll sing the song in New York about my friend dying because she was in New York and uh, and it, you know, it's it's sometimes I, I can't get through it, and we stop, and, or we start again, or the band have to go around it a few times, like and get themselves together. But that's what makes a live concert. That's what makes it exciting. It's a living piece of communication. I can't stand the idea of playing the same set every night, so it becomes a theatre set, so it becomes dead. But if you're doing a live thing which changes every night, and you don't know whether you you know. Saturday night in New York is different to Monday night in Philadelphia and you have to treat it differently and that's what makes it a live gig so thrilling to us because they don't know what I'm going to write down I, I tend to have my say on the set list because emotionally as a singer I have to be able to feed my way in but they might come back and say no I don't we don't want to play this song would you play this song you know we change it yeah. um, but essentially you know they don't know what I'm going to put down <laughs> And, it, and there'll be some songs that we don't know very well on purpose so that we'll have to play fucking well to get through and that keeps us alive well I, was, uh, I mean I can't help but um, not ask when you say that last bit but how many songs do you typically rehearse before a tour? we don't rehearse really? no we, we use the sound checks for rehearsing 
that is, I should add context for people listening, that is particularly rare, or well, I think well, increasingly rare. But imagine we've got, we've probably got a hundred songs that if we do two sound checks, three sound checks, we could play live. If we played them, and we have, we often do VIP sessions where people come in early and we play to them, and we use those sessions to try out songs that we don't know. And, um, and if they work, then we stick them in the set that night. And if we don't know how they end, we'll stick them in the set that night. <laughs> and we'll all be looking at each other in excitement and terror and wonder to see who's going to run with it. And that is thrilling. That's amazing. I mean, we're at the end here, but honestly, I mean, 15 albums. <laughs> I brought it up before. How does it make you feel when you hear that? Because you would always hope for that. Uh, was starting a band or starting a creative pursuit, I would imagine, but to know that you've achieved that, 15 albums, that's... I don't think of it. I think of it more in terms of, have we sustained our quality? And most of the time we have. Um, and that's the important thing. Is this album alive? Is, is the work we're doing still vital? And for us, whether we're in a bubble of our own delusion, it is, so we keep going. And the minute it isn't, then we stop. Yeah, well, I hope you guys never stop. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank I you. Really appreciate it. Thank you.